Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by senior football correspondent Melissa Reddy and Northern football correspondent Mark Critchley to discuss the very latest news on how coronavirus is impacting on the football world. And how bizarre it already is that only a few short weeks ago, a great many of us had absolutely no idea what it meant to furlough staff. But as football clubs continue to work out their response to the ongoing pandemic, whether or not clubs should be furloughing their playing and non-playing staff has become one of the hottest topics in the game. There's only one place we can possibly start this week. Uh, Melissa, you had the incredible story, really, that Liverpool were reversing their decision to place some staff on furlough. Can you please talk us through that decision, really, and, and explain just how big of a PR own goal that whole episode was? I don't think it was surprising that they did backtrack, given the scale of the criticism and how extensive it was in tearing apart everything Liverpool have tried to position themselves as, uh, which was betrayed by that move. I think to start off, we need to say that football is not immune from the financial implications of the pandemic. We know that a lot of money is being lost currently and there's potential for, I think it is estimated to be around a billion, um, to be seeded in the Premier League if the season is not finished. So it's not that people assume that football clubs have lots of money lying around or is this bling bling business that that isn't going to be affected. I think the issue is clubs with the stature of Liverpool turning to the government scheme so quickly when they can afford to pay their staff still. I think that was one of the big issues that you'd expect it from Tottenham and you'd expect it from Newcastle. Um, you, you just wouldn't expect Liverpool, given their whole this means more, the promotion of their socialist roots, the quoting of Bull Shankly at every opportunity, to run so quickly to such a scheme without going through other alternatives first. And I think the timing of it was also, it, it did jar because I knew that the players were in negotiations to come to some sort of a conclusion about how they could help with cash flow. And they were determined not to have any staff furlough. They wanted staff to still uh, be paid fully. Um, and the other thing was that senior executives and the backroom team were also in talks to take pay cuts. They were all willing to do so, pay cuts and deferrals. Uh, so the timing was off. Um, there's been suggestions there was a leak and that's why Liverpool had to act so quickly um, because there were sections of the media that found out before the club had informed some employees uh, and that's why they had to release it so quickly. But that doesn't change the fact that they were going to furlough staff using the government scheme, whether there was a leak or not. 
it only changed when they announced the information, but not that they were actually going to go through with it. Melissa, you've obviously covered Liverpool for a long time for, for us and other publications and you've been around that club a lot. You've interviewed a lot of the players, you know, that's a club you know so well. Were you surprised just on a personal level when you heard that decision being made? The original decision to yeah, furlough. Yeah, the initial decision, sorry. Uh, it was very surprising because it was so quick. I think whether rightly or wrongly, but when you look at English football, I think Manchester United and Liverpool are held to different standards. I think those are the clubs you look to really to be the benchmark for a lot of things. And Liverpool especially, because it does sell itself on exceptionalism, because it does market and and really push the the socialism angle, the this is a club of the people, of the community. And to be honest, I mean the managers' politics and and the players, the way they behave within the local um, area and how helpful they are, it does really set them apart so it did jar because if Liverpool had done this in say August while all the other Premier League clubs were in the same boat effectively and Chelsea and Arsenal and City and United all were thinking there is absolutely the only way we can keep jobs we we cannot afford to pay non-playing staff anymore the only way to keep them is by turning to the furlough scheme I think it would have been understandable but for them to be one of the first uh, yeah, it, it was a shock. Well, reaction to the news of the U-turn has been polarised, to say the least. Um, a lot of people have praised Liverpool for ultimately doing the right thing. A lot of people have criticised them and made the point that maybe you shouldn't be praised for rowing back a bad decision. Critch, what side of the argument do you come down on? Oh my God! Um, <laughs> this is a this this is I, I think this has been I think it's been a fascinating debate. Um, and I feel like having spent two or three weeks saying I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, most of us have spent the last week saying we're not an economist, but and we don't know anything about fiscal policy. But um, but I think look, I, I, I've been speaking to people writing other pieces about football finances this week, not necessarily on this issue. And even when I've tried to put a counter argument to them and, and you know, perhaps, you know, just just try and get a sense of how this decision might have been come to, how why clubs are doing it, and whether there's financial sense behind it, even they find it difficult to defend. I think there's a general sense that even though there are very uncertain times ahead for all Premier League clubs of all sizes, because simply, you know, if, if they for example, if they don't get the TV money, that's a huge knock on that has a huge knock on effect. And you are talking about four or five clubs, even in the Premier League, being at risk of, of serious financial difficulty, if that's true. Even though it is uncertain, I think there is a sense that if you're making profits, um, or if you have made profits, we should say, then you shouldn't be leaning on public money to, to pay your staff. And you should have cash reserves to say nothing of like the owner's own personal wealth, billionaires, millionaires, that they should dip into that in order to pay for this rather than public finances. And I, I, generally, I think that's the side of the argument that I would come down upon. But I think you know, morally, the issue really, um, it ultimately comes down to how will this money be paid off ultimately? It, 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 is, a, it is going to be an expense to the public purse, to the taxpayer. Um, and the question is, how is it paid for? 
this government debt that has essentially been accumulated to, to, to work for this scheme, something like 78 billion pounds it's going to cost. So how do we pay for that? There's a few ways the government could do that. They could do it through tax rises. Uh, they could do it through printing money, quantitative easing, um, or they could do it through austerity. And I think that is the, that's the key to all this. It will probably in the end be a mixture of all three. But if, we, if this country goes through another decade of austerity led by a Tory government and clubs are seen to have some, in some way contributed to that, whatever the details, whatever the facts of that, if that's the, if that's the optics and that's the image, then that's going to be very damaging. And I think PR conscious clubs like Liverpool are, you, they, they want to be seen on the right side of history. And so ultimately they've come down to what I think is the right decision. Um, but like I say, this is, we, these are uncertain times and we, we don't really know <laughs> what the outcome is going to be, whether even in three or four months the, the furlough scheme is still going to be in place and, and clubs might even have to reconsider. Can you imagine a U-turn on a U-turn if that happened? What would the reaction be? Um, it's difficult to tell, but I think for the moment, there's an obvious PR decision to make and, and Liverpool have belatedly come to it. It was, um, it was interesting timing, Critch, your, your news piece on the fact that Manchester United would not be placing staff on furlough. That obviously came at almost the exact same moment that Melissa was filing her piece on, on Liverpool's U-turn. But I suppose, you know, Manchester United and Manchester City, two clubs that you cover very closely, um, I guess they deserve some praise here. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so to an extent. Although, and to be fair to both of them, the noises coming out of the club, like the week before this all really kicked off, before Saturday, if you like, um, it was very much that things would be business as usual and that staff would be paid as normal. And that was, although there was no confirmation of that, that was the sense that that, that was where both clubs were, were leading towards. But to be honest, I think, by Sunday when City announced and then by Monday when United announced, like I said before, the right decision in PR terms was basically obvious to anybody who has two eyes, two ears and, uh, and a Twitter account in the end, wasn't it? I mean, we all saw the reaction. So, um, And I think it's telling more than anything that since Liverpool announced on Saturday that they would be furloughing staff, I don't think we've seen any other top flight clubs announced since, in which time Liverpool have reversed the decision, which, which tells you the direction of travel on this. So. Um, yeah, I, look, United, I, I criticise United. I, I think people criticise the Glazer owners, you know, a lot. So, and, and a, lot of it's, a lot of it's worthy criticism. But their reaction generally to this crisis has been good. They, they, they paid, I think it was £350 to, on top of the ticket price, the fans who went to the game in, in Austria who had tickets for that, uh, which was played behind closed doors. They promised to pay all, um, all the casual staff. Uh, and then this decision not to furlough staff, again, in PR terms, you know, they're, they're coming out pretty golden from it so far. City, yes, as well, you know, this decision, they were the first club to confirm that they wouldn't be furloughing. So there's some, some PR bonus in that, I suppose. Um, they have been criticised in other things for um, still taking payments for season tickets, for example. And I think that's been a, maybe a little bit of a misstep by the club. But generally, both of them have uh, reacted in a way that, They've come out looking pretty good out of, out of the situation, as good as you can do in a, in a global pandemic. And, um, <laughs> and, that's, and yeah, maybe that's the way forward. OK, so four clubs have obviously uh, placed staff on furlough, not including Liverpool now. That is Newcastle, United, as Mel mentioned, Norwich, Bournemouth and Tottenham Hotspur. Um, of those four, Spurs are in the most fortuitous financial position um, with the strength of the squad and, and the owner and the new stadium, etc. Um, Melissa, 
I guess the obvious question is, do we think that they're going to buckle in the way that Liverpool have? I don't think so. Um, I don't think the pressure is there as extensively as it was on Liverpool. I don't see Daniel Levy changing his mind because social media and fans and former players are telling him to. Um, I just don't think there's the same expectation on Spurs or even the same... I think with Liverpool, there was a sense of, if you tell them this is morally wrong, this doesn't sit well, that they would change their minds because we've seen Fenway Sports Group reverse decisions in the past. Um, and they are, they're always willing to listen, to engage, to understand, and then to take what is quite a big step off admitting when they're wrong. I don't see Tottenham doing the same, uh, nor Newcastle. And I think the big thing here is Liverpool's reversal shows that they actually could afford to pay their staff. They, they weren't desperate to turn to the government um, grant and they've gone too quickly. And I think that's the sentiment for Tottenham and Newcastle as well. Um, I'm less harsh on, on, on Norwich and, and Bournemouth because they don't have the same finances. Bournemouth, obviously, in a, in a different sort of situation because they've got a wealthy owner. But I think the way they've handled it with Eddie Howe taking a pay cut, the rest of the backroom team taking a pay cut and senior executives, um, that's a better way of doing it because it shows a, a togetherness. I think what these clubs don't realise is by furloughing staff, which, by the way, players and managers don't have a say in. They they don't get to make the decision. This is done by the financial, commercial, ownership teams. But, you know, with the government scapegoating on players, that just enhances it. It, it makes the players a softer, an easier, a more open target. And that's unfair on them, given, you know, they're trying to set up the charity fund, they're all in talks for deferrals and pay cuts, um, which, while it's not happening, I think, quick enough, uh, as everyone would like, it's so complex because, you know, as we've discussed previously, even at the same clubs, you have teenagers playing for the first team who are not on the same type of money as the top earners. So them deferring salary for three months does affect them, whereas it may not affect the top earner. So trying to make it fair on everybody is taking time, but the decision of clubs have made life so much harder, unfairly, for the players. Rich, I mean, with Spurs, has this been one of the biggest football PR disasters in recent memory? Because first Spurs announced that they're furloughing staff, then the Telegraph has a story yesterday, so Tuesday, that Daniel Levy wants to have the club's ground staff working on his private estate. And then photographs emerge of Jose Mourinho illicitly training players <laughs> in a public park. Yeah. Um, has it been? I mean, it's always difficult to quantify with these things because we have a, a bit of a recency bias with them. But it feels like it's not been ideal from a PR perspective. Again, it's like like the question you asked me ago. Uh, sorry, Melissa. There. Sorry, it's been a long week. <laughs> totally sorry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like like the question you asked there, whether whether anybody's actually going to, uh, whether anybody at Spurs actually really really cares <laughs> about the PR perspective, or whether they're looking at the bottom line on this, I think is the question. 
Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they've been entrenched in this position for a week and a half now. I, I, I don't expect, I don't expect any reversal on it. Again, maybe they're looking at it in colder terms. Like I said before, I think Liverpool are a club that are very conscious of PR for exactly the reasons that uh, Melissa's saying about, you know, this means more, etc. Spurs don't necessarily have that kind of, I don't know, vibe or ethos or whatever you want to call it around them. Um, and maybe, maybe they are just a little bit more concerned about the bottom line. And, and, and look, like I said before, I think that we, we, this is such an uncertain situation that we can't say for certain whether in, in three or four months' time other clubs aren't doing exactly what Spurs are doing now and furloughing workers. You'll note that, we, like the United story, before we reported it, they said, we're not going to be furloughing staff for the duration of the government scheme, which is currently expected to last three months. There's no guarantees beyond that. There are no guarantees in this game whatsoever, especially if things like TV money, etc., goes out the window. So, you know, maybe, maybe yes, maybe it has been a terrible PR week for Spurs, and we're talking about PR a lot on this podcast. But, um, but I feel like perhaps we have such a short memory nowadays that in a couple of months' time, Spurs will be furloughing workers. It won't be in the news anymore, and maybe other clubs will. And you know, ultimately, they end up. It, you know, all things are equal in the end. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I don't. I think it's it's been bad from a perspective, but they're probably they probably acknowledge that and are willing to handle it. Feels to me like they're just leaning into being the uh, pantomime villains now. They've got like the Death Star new stadium. They've made the unpopular decision. What the hell? We'll just we'll just go full throttle. Um, yeah. Well, the, the Levy, the break, Levy like break Rakerson. social dis- break social distancing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything wrong. Have your employees till the land of your hundred acre estate. You know, it's just, it's just, it's kind of Dickensian. But like I say, like they will have known. I, obviously, that that's, that story hasn't come from Spurs. It's come through the Telegraph, Matt Law. You know, through resources, etc. So, but it, it's not a good look. But I'm not entirely sure that they care because it's such a transient industry hours. And you know, this is the news cycle is moving so fast at the moment that who's to say we'll even be talking about it this time next week? Yeah. Good point. Okay, thanks very much. Um, It's time for a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about how the pandemic is going to change uh, football in the future, picking up on what Chris just said, whether these issues will still be discussed or whether they're all going to be uh, forgotten as the news cycle uh, continues. Plus, we've got some listener feedback to get stuck into. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. All season long on the podcast, we've talked about the social responsibilities of football clubs, uh, whether or not football remains a working class game. It's something the likes of Melissa and Mark have written about. It's something the likes of Miguel Delaney, Tony Evans have written about pretty consistently. Um, on that topic, Melissa, do you think we are currently witnessing something of an acceleration of the discussion that football clubs are part of their communities and do have obligations to their towns and cities and where they're from? Um, because it felt earlier in the season when we were talking about this stuff that these topics were a little bit niche, whereas now it feels like, you know, these issues are kind of vital and they're right at the forefront of what people care about and what they're interested about. Yeah, I think nothing can train your mind to look for things or to sort of face the reality of, of situations like a, a crisis when you actually are faced with right and wrong. And at the start of this, I thought football came out quite strongly. I thought on an, on an individual level, clubs were doing um, a lot of great stuff, whether it was helping out the food banks, um, you know, calling up people they knew were elderly because of the season, you know, season tickets and having that sort of information, um, helping them get their groceries, just talking to them, calling up people they knew um, would be struggling a little bit mentally with the whole isolation and, and lockdown elements. Uh, the players supporting charities and making donations to hospitals and all that kind of stuff, the clubs giving up their stadiums. And then I think as we've got deeper into the the state of play where it's become so pronounced how much the game stands to lose, we've started to see the bickering between the organisations and everybody jostling to come out on the right side uh, of this PR war. And now more than ever, I think clubs will be looked at and players will be looked at and associations will be looked at to see whether they've managed to collectively do the right thing. We spoke earlier about how United have handled it. And like I said, I think when United are the benchmark, uh, they should be. And I I thought they've been brilliant. on an individual level, even their players. And I I think all clubs should be thinking about what more they can do. And oftentimes I feel like we divorce the fact that it is a business, yes. And you can be both. And I think United have shown in this instance that you can be both. United, you know, care about their profits and stuff but they've also helped in every way possible um, during this crisis. And I genuinely feel after all of this, we're going to be looking at football top down. Like I said, from the association, all people in power, everybody involved and ask, what did they do? Who did it right? Who did it wrongly? And I don't think people will forget. I suppose another point is, you know, what on earth will the pyramid look like after this? Um, Mark, you wrote last week, I think it was, about FC United. Um, You wrote about uh, the championship, the changes that could come to the championship today. I think that was published about an hour before um, we're recording this. 
So as somebody who, you know, has looked at clubs outside the Premier League and outside the, the big European leagues, how are you expecting football to, to possibly change? Yeah, well, like you say, I did this piece on the Championship this week. Um, spoke to David Sharp, uh, who was, you might remember him as the chairman of Wigan. He was the youngest chairman in the Football League after he took over from his, his grandfather, uh, Dave Whelan. There was a very uh, it was a great, a good conversation, a good insight, because it was very interesting. He is the former chairman of Wigan now, uh, having sold it in November 2018 um, to a, a company from Hong Kong. And essentially, he got out of the game because he found that he just couldn't keep up with the amount of risks, with the amount of money that you had to spend in order to gamble on getting a, getting a promotion place into the Premier League. Uh, now, this isn't, this isn't really news to anybody. We all know um, that there's this, if you follow stories that come out of the championship about teams selling the stadiums to themselves and trying to work ways around FFP and Sheffield Wednesday are uh, sponsored by a, a taxi company. This is actually the owner's taxi company. It doesn't own any taxis. That's how crazy some of the, the financing schemes and mechanisms that these championship clubs use are looking for any way to get ahead and get an advantage. And he had basically, David Sharpie, basically grown tired of that. Um, and that was 18 months ago. Now, he said to me, I've, he looked at Blackburn's finances, which had just come out that morning, their accounts. They'd lost £18 million. And he said, now, we didn't have coronavirus last season. And now we're facing three months without any match day revenue. Uh, very, very little commercial revenue. The broadcast revenues aren't that great anyway at that level. You are honestly looking at a situation whereby the landscape of football below the Premier League and in the lower reaches of the Premier League as well completely changes because of this virus uh, and becomes essentially unrecognisable. We all know the high-profile cases at Bury and, and Bolton earlier this season. <laughs> you know, they got a lot of coverage. You'd like to think other clubs will get a lot of coverage, but the fact of the matter is there might be so many facing the same problem at the same time that it'll, it'll simply be overwhelming for, uh, for English football. The, the, Communities everywhere will be without these institutions that they put so much of their life and effort into. They could just be robbed of because of essentially a financial model that has encouraged and been predicated on taking risks rather than protection. Um, so, and that's that's the championship. The situation is a lot bleaker at, at League One and League Two. And I know we were discussing player wages last week. PFA was getting a lot of criticism in some in some areas. That's right, but again, a lot of what the PFA and a lot of what the Premier League players are trying to do is try and protect their fellow union members who are League One, League Two players who aren't necessarily guaranteed to be in work this time next year and wouldn't be anyway because that's simply the way that football works. You know, many of them would have been looking towards going on to semi-professional contracts and having to find a second job to supplement their income. So these are all questions that we're having to ask at the minute. Uh, and honestly, <laughs> we keep, every time you try and write a piece about just what it might look like, nobody really knows because nobody really knows knock-on and the domino effects of one club going, then another, one defaulting on payment. And, you know, just, this isn't, and this isn't just a football problem. That's the thing to remember as well. David Sharp, like I was saying, his family own health clubs and gyms. Now, he was saying that if he still owned a football club, 
he would put his health club and his gym before that football club because that's his family business and that's where they make the money. They only lose money in football. It only takes most of the other owners in the football league and non-league and even in the Premier League to suffer losses outside of football and to think, I'm not going to spend any more money on this luxury anymore. So the crisis that the whole of the game faces really is unprecedented and it remains just uncertain as to how it plays out. Chris, what's, what's just out of interest, when you've been kind of speaking to various people from various clubs, maybe people who you know, haven't been speaking to the media lots or their club's not been getting a lot of coverage, what's the kind of the general mood like? Are people resigned to this or are people kind of still trying to figure out ways in which they can survive? Is there any optimism at all? <laughs> I mean, it's def- I, I, people are worried. People are definitely concerned um, whether there's optimism. I don't, to be honest, I don't think there can be optimism because the situation is so grave and, again, so uncertain that what, what green shoots are there to really, to really clutch onto? Um, I, I, I think, like, I, like you said, I wrote that piece about FC United and I, I wrote it about them because I thought they had um, a particularly unique kind of take on this. I think the day that I published that was the day when, in their league, it was announced that they were just going to basically scrap the season, void all the results and start again next year. Now, they were in a position where they were going for promotion. Um, back to the National League North, uh, which would have been, obviously, after, after being relegated last year, would have been a huge boost for the club. They've now got to start again. But they, what was interesting about their stance was, we're not going to challenge this through the courts. We're going to have to just accept it, move on, and go again next season. Now, people might argue that they're quite a well-known non-league club and perhaps you know, they have a bigger support base than most teams at their level and perhaps they can be a bit more confident about their future than others but I think that ultimately showed a way forward it ultimately showed that at the end of this there are going to have to be a lot of difficult and necessary compromises that teams have to make in order to in order to come to a situation where we can have 92 professional football league clubs and a strong non-league pyramid below that that supports it. Chris you mentioned the, um, the PFA there Obviously, that's a, a story you've been at the forefront of, Melissa, the discussions between the PFA and, and the Premier League. Um, you filed an update on that yesterday. Just before we wrap up, could you maybe just bring us up to speed on what those discussions are and, and where those two groups currently stand? Yeah, the Premier League players will discuss it on a club-by-club basis. Uh, obviously, the standardised 30% 12-month deferral uh, was rejected by the players because, like I said, they're all on varying amounts of money, varying contracts, and they didn't feel that a 12-month across-the-board um, cut made any sort of sense, especially with clubs being in different positions. So what will happen is the players are all willing to defer, uh, but they want to see when they actually need to defer and how long for, which would be different for every club, depending on their cash flow. Um, also, the the fund that the players are creating, that should be up and running soon. Uh, the PFA have put a million pounds into it. Gordon Taylor's put 500,000 senior executives 
will also be contributing substantial donations, I'm told. Um, and the players are free to put whatever they can into it because, like I said, they don't want to make it a standardized donation because everybody earns differently. Everybody has their own charities and stuff that they're um, also involved in. Um, and the big thing I think with that is the players have been so conscious of helping not just the cash flow of their clubs, but they've insisted that they want to help lower down the pyramid clubs and employees that need it, um, NHS, food banks, other local initiatives. Um, and the thing that Critch was saying about, you know, football potentially looking so different is so true. And that's why when we're talking about that community element and clubs and football just being responsible, it is up to the biggest and for everybody actually to club in together and make it possible, including the associations that sit on a lot of money, make it possible for us to all come through this and still be as intact as possible. Because again, while the outside world will judge football for what it didn't, did and didn't do, football itself will be very unforgiving if clubs and associations and players and, and all stakeholders don't do as much as possible. Okay, thank you very much. Um, just before we go, we've got a couple of questions from one from a listener, one from a reader of the site. Uh, the first is from Dave, who is an independent premium member, and he writes, in a country where the majority of newspaper companies have furloughed staff under the government scheme, Suddenly, all the noise in those and this paper is about the dreadful morals of a Liverpool football club. Fenway Sports Group, uh, who obviously own Liverpool, are not a charity. They are a commercial company. They have not laid anyone off. Given the level of financial investment in the club, Liverpool are not especially profitable and a lengthy break in the football season could have enormous financial repercussions for them. What have they done wrong? Um, I hope we've probably addressed most of those points a bit higher up in the show, but maybe, uh, Mel, if you want to give that one a quick stab. Yeah, I think the the easiest way to frame it, which a supporter had said on Twitter, is it's like going to the food bank when you can still comfortably afford to go to the supermarket and buy a meal. Liverpool could still afford to pay staff, non-playing staff, for a few more months. Like we said, the executives, the players were all in talk, so there was no need for Liverpool to rush to use the government scheme. I don't think anyone has an issue that the government scheme is there or that it's not that football clubs shouldn't use it. They shouldn't use it when they don't have to. It should be the last resort. Okay, staff are definitely going to lose jobs. The only way they can keep this jobs, these jobs is if we turn to the scheme. That wasn't Liverpool's case and that's why it was wrong. Yeah, 100%. And I think I should probably also point out that the majority of newspaper companies aren't earning the same amount as Liverpool as well. Um, another from Chris on email. Um, are all the positive gestures from footballers and lower league clubs not frustratingly trivial if the richest clubs on the planet do not even bother to help their lowest paid staff? In the last podcast, you spoke about how football can change for the better in the wake of the pandemic, but are clubs already not testing the water to see what they can get away with? Um, but I think... The general tone of most of our discussions on this has been that clubs are in a position where they can certainly do more, um, just based on the fact that Liverpool, Tottenham, um, I should know this, but 
other top six clubs have made profits over the last year. Some of that money could be going back into communities. It could be going back to help this. Some clubs are helping. Um, Manchester United and Manchester City donated the grand total of uh, £100,000 together, which is welcome to, to food banks, to the Trussell Trust. But I think most people looked at that and thought, well, we can do a bit more. I was speaking to um, a piece that's going to be over the next few days. I was speaking to somebody from the Manchester City Fans Food Bank, which was set up recently. And, um, you know, they, they pointed out that Stockport County, who are in the National League, had donated £75,000 out of their own pocket to local food banks. Now, if Stockport County can afford to pay £75,000, then surely Manchester City and Manchester United individually can afford a bit more than 50. But, you know, <laughs> it's still welcome and it's still, it's, it's still money that, you know, they, they don't have to do. And they're still, these clubs are still organising other means and, you know, they deserve credit for that. But I think, <laughs> and I, it feels a bit picky for us to say, oh, what's, what's the right amount? You know, what figure do you put on it? But I think ultimately everyone's in agreement that clubs should be looking to do more and use some of the resources to help in the wider community and you know groups like that Manchester City Food Bank and and others I know the I know there's ones affiliated with Liverpool and Everton as well um, they're they're pressuring those clubs and and they're getting to do that and that's that's community action you know that's community work in action if you like and something that I think even us in the journalism trade and in the industry could could learn from and and uh, try try and help out with great answer um, I should point out I've forgotten to do it for. Uh, so long in the podcast but if you do have a question or a point or anything you want to um you want to talk to us about you can email digital sport at independent.co.uk um digital sport all one word or you can just contact us on twitter message us whatever uh okay thank you melissa and mark um before we go a quick plug the independent has launched a new coronavirus podcast uh, last week melissa and i were both on as guests and each episode takes a look at how the pandemic is impacting on the different walk of life so make sure to check that out if you're a new listener to our podcast, please subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Acast, uh, wherever. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>